Welcome to Coast Range Radio, a production of the Coast Range Association. I'm your host, Michael Gaskill. Aquaculture is the intentional cultivation of aquatic organisms like fish, mollusks, and aquatic plants, and humans have been practicing it in various forms for thousands of years. If I asked you to picture what aquaculture looks like, there's a good chance that if anything comes to mind, it would be environmentally destructive salmon farms, which are basically the underwater equivalent to confined factory animal farming operations. But it doesn't have to be this way. Aquaculture can not only be sustainable, but environmentally regenerative. The Pacific Northwest is ripe for a boom in aquaculture, but we need to do it right. So I reached out to Megan Considine of the Nature Conservancy and Steve Rumrill with the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife to learn more about the potential and risks with this burgeoning industry. I learned so much from this conversation, and I think you will too. One quick note. We had some technical difficulties with Steve's audio, but he is a wealth of knowledge and experience, so I felt like it was important to leave his contributions in. As always, I love hearing feedback, guest ideas, thoughts, questions, anything. My email is michael at coastrange.org. If you like the show, please subscribe to our podcast, recommend the show to at least one friend, and please consider a donation of any amount to the Coast Range Association at coastrange.org really helps. Yeah, so my name is Megan Considine. Um, I'm a restorative aquaculture fellow for the Nature Conservancy and Oregon Sea Grant. Um, And I have a bachelor's in marine science and master's of science in marine resource management. Um, And my background uh, is also in uh, oyster restoration work on both the east and west coast of the U.S. Yeah, so my name is Steve Rumrell, and I'm the shellfish program leader for the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. That's a sub-program within the ODFW Marine Resources Program. I have a responsibility for the oversight of commercial and recreational shellfish fisheries and also characterization of their habitats throughout the state. So that includes our uh, commercial recreational fisheries for clams, oysters, shrimp, uh, for uh, sea urchins and other shellfish along the coast. And so it's an interesting job for me as a professional scientist working in this field over 40 40 years or so. Well, I'm really excited to talk with both of you today and and learn more about this because this is definitely not my not my field of expertise, so I've already had a lot of fun digging into some of the uh, background research. Uh, speaking of which, I'm hoping we can start just kind of like, let's set a foundation, you know, what we're talking about here. We're going to get into some of the specifics of you 2s work, but I wonder, Megan, uh, if you could just give us kind of a few definitions to ground the conversation. What are we talking about with aquaculture, and what are we talking about with some of the you know, sub-definitions, regenerative aquaculture, conservation-based aquaculture, commercial, you know, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I think aquaculture is commonly perceived as like a com- commercial aquaculture or mariculture within the marine environment. Um, and, and restorative aquaculture would, would could still be considered commercial aquaculture, but it's um, aquaculture that also provides benefits to ocean ecosystems. It also has that goal within it, as well as communities um, that rely on them. 
And then kind of another subset of that could be conservation aquaculture, which is more so focused on, um, you know, restoring uh, population um, and not so much as of, of a commercial focus. Right. And and this one for either of you, you know, why is it so important for us to be talking about different kinds of aquaculture, especially when we're talking about, you know, kind of the mix of commercial and um, ecologically minded aquaculture that that folks might refer to as regenerative or restorative aquaculture. Why is that so important for us to be talking about? Well, we have in many cases overfished or overharvested these aquatic organisms to the point where their populations are no longer sustainable to be able to allow that high level of harvest. And in many cases, the wild populations have diminished to the point where we need to supplement them. And that can be done, as Megan has pointed out, for commercial purposes, to sell them on the open market. Uh, but in the cases of regenerative or conservation aquaculture, or restorative aquaculture, or more specifically, restorative mariculture, uh, then we would raise them up to simply try to augment or enhance those populations or to enhance some of the ecosystem benefits provided by those populations. Uh, to help increase the um, diversity of species or heterogeneity of the habitat, to produce um, habitat for other animals to live there, a whole series of different reasons why we would engage in this complicated and expensive process to physically augment or enhance these populations in the marine world. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, and it's also, I feel, important to point out that the aquaculture, the way we're going to talk about practicing it. Some of that is going to be new, but aquaculture in various forms is something that's been practiced by people all around the world throughout different cultures for thousands of years in a sustainable way. So while we're maybe talking about different type, the concept is something as old as, or maybe even older than, than agriculture itself in some ways. So let's talk a little bit about the specific projects that you all are working on. And then I'd, I'd like to maybe put a pin in that and, and come back to it. But I, I just want to give folks an, an idea of what specifically we're, we're talking about as it relates to you two. Yeah. So for my current fellowship, um, I'm currently working on a situation analysis for Oregon's emergent seaweed aquaculture industry. And so it's exploring, you know, largely exploring an overview of challenges um, and opportunities for, for that emergent industry. Um, and then for my master's work, uh, working with Steve, um, I worked with oyster growers along the Oregon coast to detect and prevent uh, an aquaculture-related pest. Um, and then I also helped to coordinate and manage a native Olympia oyster restoration project in Yaquina Bay uh, that involved collaborating with an innovative architect from California, um, as well as Whiskey Creek shellfish hatchery. Yeah, and I saw uh, some of the pictures of those, like, uh, I think you call them artificial substrata, basically creating, you know, artificial, almost artificial earth or rocks for that, that the oysters can, can actually grip onto. One of the questions I had is, why is there a dearth of, of like, suitable natural substrata for the, uh, for the oysters to be able to, to thrive on? Yeah, so a lot of the native oysters along the West Coast were um, over-harvested. 
uh, in the 1800s. Um, and so there's a lack of shell, there's a lack of, you know, existing kind of oyster beds um, for, for oysters to attach to. Yeah. Yeah, if I can add to that, historically, there was a vibrant population such an extent that um, a mid part of Yaquina Bay was known as Oysterville. And uh, very rapidly over the turn of the century, those oysters were heavily exploited uh, and really harvested all the way down. So even by the 1920s, there were concern about sustainability of those native Olympia oysters in Yaquina Bay. And then subsequent years of habitat alteration, dikes and levees, and taking away those shoreline salt marshes, uh, that tended to simplify the edge of the estuary and channelize the deposition of sediment, couldn't get out and deposit there. So the estuaries have filled up with sediment and that has really buried uh, the long legacy of subtidal oysters and those oyster beds that Megan referred to. So it's taken away that really great heterogeneous shell habitat uh, from mm. our estuaries and converted them into subtidal mud intertidal mud habitats. So as you described, Michael, in terms of, of our work with the innovative architect, trying to recreate some of those lost intricate habitats uh, to provide space for not only the Olympia oysters to grow, but also other animals, barnacles and mussels and seaweeds that might become attached to them to also find a, a place to settle down and, and uh, settle into that ecological niche. Well, thanks for that. Yeah. Um, so for folks that might not like to eat oysters like I do, what, why is it so important to be, to be providing this habitat and trying to regenerate those oyster populations? Yeah. So oysters are considered like ecosystem engineers. Uh, you know, they, they create these really complex 3D um, environments that, you know, provide habitat for uh, you know, range of species, uh, nursery habitat uh, for a range of species and food for different species. Um, oysters are also filter feeders, so they improve water clarity and quality uh, through that process. Um, yeah, and they, you know, oysters can also provide through that 3D structure, can also provide um, shoreline protection uh, from wave energy, you know, attenuate wave energy. Um, yeah, so they're really, really a foundational species in a lot of ways, it sounds like. They're really, like, have a lot of different functions in the ecosystem, it sounds like. Yeah, and if I can add to that, you know, we consider yeah. uh, Olympia oysters and, and uh, non-native uh, Pacific oysters uh, to provide those ecosystem benefits that Megan described. They're in a general class of larger living shorelines. So we attribute some of those um, ecosystem benefits uh, to other organisms too, like eelgrass or seagrasses or kelps along the shoreline, shellfish beds, um, salt marshes. All of these are, are uh, living shorelines that all help to uh, protect and enhance the ecological values along the shoreline. And the Olympia oysters that we worked on are just one species out of many. And uh, we're really fortunate Megan has moved into uh, her professional uh, career pathway and is now going to have to consider all of these different kinds of, of species and ways to enhance them for uh, conservation purposes. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I want to get into that. Um, but just before we get off of oysters, which I should point out are also very tasty for most of us. Um, yeah, Megan, how was it managing that that project? Um, how was your experience down in the bay? Oh, I love it. I love field work. I love um, being in the water and working the tides and um, super exciting working with, you know, all my fellow MRM uh, marine resource management colleagues that came to volunteer on the project. And um, yeah, the whole experience was exciting. Working with um, working with Alex, the architect in California, um, was also super interesting to be collaborating with someone that's kind of, you know, thinking about the project in a really different perspective and um, kind of incorporating all of our perspectives into the design process for those subs- for that substrate that we developed was also super interesting. Um, great experience overall. I want to get into the work on seaweed and, and some of the other specifics, but I think actually maybe maybe we could pull back for a second and get more into the you know broader view around aquaculture before we zoom back in. We've touched a little bit on the the benefits, but I would love for one of you to expand some on on the the potential benefits both for the environment and coastal economies. And I would also like to you know hear about because um, I think a lot of folks, um, maybe listeners to our show, maybe one of their main experiences tangentially with aquaculture is hearing about how destructive it can be, right, with with farmed salmon. So, so could we talk about some of the the potential benefits and and downfalls or drawbacks? Yeah. So I'd love to I'd love to answer that. Um, yeah. So you know I've done it in the right places with like the right farm management practices. There can be a you know a range of ecosystem benefits provided from aquaculture, um, especially oyster and you know or bivalve oysters, mussels, clams, bivalve and uh, seaweed aquaculture. Um, and so one of those that's really well studied, especially you know for for both, is is nutrient pollution mitigation. Um, so bivalves being filter feeders um, and seaweed utilizing those nutrients in the water column. Um, Another uh, potential benefit for for seaweed aquaculture is ocean acidification buffering. Although you know more research is needed on that on that subject, it can be really um, highly site dependent. Um, there's also potential for habitat provision, uh, which is m- more well studied, I would say, for for oyster aquaculture than seaweed. Uh, seaweed is a, a seasonal crop, so there's kind of some considerations there of like pulling it out of the environment and like what that might do for for habitat provision, uh, but definitely well studied for for oyster aquaculture. I'm so sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Could you just tell our listeners what habitat provision, what you mean when you say that? Yeah. So going back to that like 3D structure that oyster reefs provide, similarly, um, oyster aquaculture gear or seaweed farming gear, uh, as well as like the seaweed and oysters themselves also can provide that 3D structure um, or habitat for, for a range of, of species. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Um, you know, from, from things that, that I've seen, the Northwest here is, has huge potential for developing an, a sustainable aquaculture industry or industries, but how do we make sure that, that we have really strong environmental protection, that um, economic benefits are going to be going to communities and that um, basically profit, you know, profit motivations don't don't take over or get kind of greenwashed. I mean, I was in my research looking around, I'm seeing everybody from Nature Conservancy all the way to Walmart is talking about, you know, restorative aquaculture. And I would say, uh, you know, 
some in better faith than others, right? I can take a stab at that. Yeah. So uh, just thinking about how do we do it right? You know, one one way to do it right is uh, to uh, work uh, in partnership with all of the public trust resources uh, that have that, that responsibility to ensure um, the, the health and welfare, not only of the natural world and habitats, but also of a, of a, um, a decent lifestyle and opportunity for economic gain amongst the coastal communities. So we, as we put those together, uh, each state, and uh, Megan's going to really uh, pick this up on, on behalf of the, the world, but each um, state or, or area has its own aquaculture approval, AmeriCulture approval program. Here in Oregon, that's a combination of approval needed by the local government at the county level, sometimes even at the city level, and, uh, and uh, state approval federal oversight, and just consultation with uh, the public at large. And, uh, and those of us who are charged with these public trust responsibilities, you know, my job is to look out for the um, wild stocks of shellfish in the bays and estuaries and along the coast, and also to watch out for possible impacts to the habitats or disruption of, of existing and traditional uses. So I have a whole list of you know, 18 to 20 different kind of categories that I look at, and I raise those issues up. And what does tribal consultation look like in, in situations like this? Yeah, so the um, the coastal tribes are invited uh, to provide comments, so they have an opportunity to see the proposal uh, and to develop their perspectives into comments. Uh, very often, they will consult with us as well. The tribes have a, a unique perspective, and I always learn from them in terms of uh, their perspectives on these, these types of issues. And the tribes are interested in mariculture themselves as a, an opportunity to maintain connectivity with uh, the natural resources in the bays and estuaries. Uh, it can also be an, a source of economic input uh, to generate funds and, uh, and you know, to help uh, retain reliance and build reliance on natural foods that are good and healthy as well. So uh, uh, they're, they're interested both from impacts to those resources, but also as opportunities themselves. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. I mean, I would certainly like to be seeing, you know, between between the state of Oregon and and large NGOs, you know, efforts to to really center folks that have been doing this for millennia, you know, in these efforts and not um not, you know, kind of out of state and in investors. Um, but that might be a different discussion. Let's turn to the seaweed um, report that you are drafting. I'd love to get back into uh, specifics before we kind of talk about barriers uh, to expansion. So, Megan, could you talk a little bit about the the seaweed aquaculture report that you are are helping to draft? Yeah. So, seaweed aquaculture, like we were saying before, has you know the potential for all of these ecosystem benefits, um, as well as benefits towards uh, you know communities that rely on on those waters and those those ecosystems. Um, and so there's a lot of interest in that restorative aquaculture term, right? And um, seaweed aquaculture worldwide is a, you know, very well-established, large, large industry. Um, in the U.S., it's, it's an emerging industry um, and it's growing really rapidly. Um, and so there's a lot of interest in, you know, is, is it possible to do seaweed aquaculture in Oregon? Um, and, and what would those challenges and opportunities be um, if it's possible? 
And so that's kind of where the situation analysis, where that report is getting at, is really covering all of those potential challenges and opportunities from, you know, ben ecosystem benefits and impacts, um, site selection, um, you know, market opportunities, and and the regulatory and policy kind of considerations there. Yeah, well, it's a really comprehensive document, and so I know we won't be able to get to all of it, but um, I would say, what what would you say are some of the kind of top-line findings that you all, um, that are contained in there? Yeah, I would say the top findings um, is that seaweed aquaculture is possible in Oregon. Uh, I think some, you know, needs that are have been identified through, through the report, through Cumber, you know, this report's really been... Um, informed a lot by all the conversations that we've been having about seaweed aquaculture with, you know, people from academia, state agencies, um, NGO, local NGOs and, and companies here. Um, and I think some of the needs that have been identified is, uh, you know, a more in-depth spatial analysis for uh, potential locations and in, in water locations for seaweed aquaculture. And that could also kind of consider potential for co-location, um, as well as where where might some of these restorative benefits be most needed in, in Oregon. Um, and then kind of some other needs highlighted might be like a local hatchery for seaweed in the, in the state to, you know, be able to cultivate native seaweeds here in Oregon. Um, but yeah, I think the, right. the biggest part is that seaweed aquaculture is possible here. Regulatory-wise, it's possible, um, and there's definitely space for it. Yeah. Can we maybe dig a little deeper into that? Um, because like you were talking about, you know, siting is really key. The species that we use are key. Um, what are some other like key considerations that you all are, are looking at and, and why are those, you know, key considerations? I think another aspect to this is, you know, market opportunities and, and supply mm -hmm. chain op uh, considerations. So seaweed aquaculture has lo loads of different market potential, right? There's human consumption. Um, it, could, it could be used for cosmetics and pharmaceuticals, uh, bioplastics and biostimulants, animal feed. Um, and so kind of thinking through some of those market opportunities for, for domestic producers, um, is a, is a really big aspect for it, um, and then and then supply chain considerations as well, right? Do we have enough processing space, uh, distribution routes, um, and that's kind of again where that hatchery uh, consideration comes in as well. Where are we where are we getting the seaweed from? Is there even a hatchery to be sourcing it from? Um, I want to just add really quickly that um, the uh, conservation aquaculture uh, is uh, really a, a promising. Uh, activity that really, you know, can um, add to the diversity of living organisms that are grown along the Oregon coast. We have right now, as Megan's described in her, her uh, excellent report, a pretty limited situation with culture of, of one species, this uh, palmaria or dulse, in land-based aquaculture in tanks that are adjacent to the shoreline, but we don't have any active aquaculture out in the, the marine world at this point um, for seaweeds. Thanks for that. Yeah. Did either one of you um, have anything else that you wanted to add, either about, you know, about these specific aquaculture examples that you're working on, either either the oyster beds or seaweed or anything else? I'd like to add just a couple points, but the issue about kelp, um, kelp demise and kelp aquaculture, and then I'd like to add just a point about um, sea stars. Um, we're in a very weird situation here, an unusual and alarming situation 
where uh, we've had unprecedented warming of our marine waters. Uh, starting back in about 2013, a big massive marine heat wave uh, persisted for a long time, followed up by uh, still a warm phase of the ocean in these El Nino conditions. We're now in cooler La Nina conditions, but that unprecedented massive warming contributed to a lot of disruption along the coast. And uh, one, one uh, unfortunate situation is that's contributed to the demise and decrease of big kelps, canopy forming kelps, which are a type of seaweed, brown seaweed. And so we've suffered here in Oregon, a loss of kelp beds, bull kelp in particular, uh, on many of our rocky reef areas along the coast. And that's uh, occurred uh, most notably and reported out in the media in Northern California as well. And so um, we're in that situation where we're hopeful that we'll have several years of cooler weather and cooler um, ocean waters that would allow the, the remaining kelp plants to produce spores enough to repopulate those areas where they've declined. But this practice of conservation aquaculture or more specific uh, restorative mariculture of kelps could be a, a good conservation tool to help place new, I hate to call them seedlings, but um, sporlings, these tiny uh, kelps to become reestablished in areas. Uh, and uh, that, that would be a helpful kind of thing uh, that would be done for these ecosystem benefits that Megan has described. We wouldn't necessarily be able to draw direct uh, commercial uh, uh, you know, monetary returns from that type of effort, but it would certainly help reestablish the lost function in our in our nearshore rocky reef areas. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that. Yeah. I appreciate that that extra context. Megan, did you have anything to add on that? So I, I wanted to kind of, um, uh, in regards to some of your previous um, comments, Michael, um, I just wanted to say that um, part of the work on the West Coast that the Nature Conservancy is doing with seaweed aquaculture has largely has has been focused on uh, you know uplifting indigenous partners um, that want to pursue seaweed or, or oyster aquaculture um, for economic development, social cultural benefit, um, as well as environmental you know restoration benefits and ancestral waters, um, and that and that work kind of you know varies along the west coast, including British Columbia. It's at different stages with different partners, um, but that has been a large focus uh, for for the work that TNC is doing. Um, here on the West Coast. Just wanted to mention that. Well, that's great to hear. Yeah, I just actually, in the last couple of days, spoke with uh, uh, the chairman of the Amamutsan tribe down in California. That's part of the Tribal Marine Stewards Network, and we were also touching on, um, which is a, a really amazing. If uh, anybody hasn't heard that episode yet, a really amazing partnership uh, between now five different tribes in California co-managing uh, marine protected areas down there. And we're definitely touching on on the kelp down there as well. We're starting to wrap things up here, but I wanted to just learn a little bit more about each of you and, and how you all started working together and how you all got into this work. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I grew up on the Chesapeake Bay on the East Coast. Um, and Oyster restoration is there's there's loads of different um, nonprofits in the Chesapeake Bay area doing oyster restoration work. And so, um, you know, in elementary school, I got to be in part of oyster restoration projects as part of like class projects. And that was really inspiring um, as a kid. And so 
um, kind of oysters have been a part of my interest in the marine world for a long time. Um, and part of me coming to Oregon um, was I wanted to pursue a, a master's in marine resource management. Um, and the director of the program, uh, knowing that I wanted to do oyster things, uh, connected me with Steve uh, for my master's work. And so that's kind of how our, um, yeah, how, how that started. Great. Well, yeah. How about you, Steve? How how long have you been in this work? How Why is it meaningful to you? You know, I'm uh, uh, near the end of my career, uh, my professional career. Uh, so I've been at this for quite a while. I grew up in uh, California and as a child moved to Hawaii. And so I grew up really in, in these beautiful places and uh, took a liking to, uh, to the ocean world at a very young age. My uh, parents were active at the University of Hawaii in the East-West Center. And we hosted uh, a young man from uh, Micronesia as a student who lived with us at our home. So I was at that perfect age of fourth and fifth, sixth grade, uh, with him living in our house, and he taught me to snorkel and spearfish and how to climb coconut trees and all that kind of great stuff as a kid. So I really had a, a great interest um, right from the get-go. And then when I moved back to California and completed high school and got into uh, the University of California, Santa Cruz, as an undergraduate, I linked up with a great group of mentors and undergraduates and graduate students that just caught me up in that, that whole world. So my undergraduate degree was in marine biology, and I worked on the larval biology and ecology of these weird little grazers called chitons. So I've been at this for a long time, uh, 40, 45 years or so, quite a, quite a while. We've had the good fortune to do that work here in California, Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, Florida, uh, and Boston as well, uh, Massachusetts. All right. Yeah. Sounds like a, a great career. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it always does go back to, to childhood, I find. Yeah, it sure does. Uh, whenever I ask that question. Well, that seems like a pretty great place to, to leave it. Megan, last words are to you. Anything else you want to add? And how can people learn more about the work you're doing? Yeah, um, I feel like we've covered a lot today. And in terms of like connecting on further work, um, I'd be happy to share Again, that uh, public report, the situation analysis for, for Oregon seed aquaculture industry that we chatted about. Um, and then there's also, um, you know, a Nature Conservancy document, um, Global Principles on Restorative Aquaculture, that could be um, an interesting resource as well that I can, that I can share uh, for folks to look at. Yeah, and I will put links to, to those in the show notes as well. So, well... Stephen and Megan, thank you both so much for joining us on Coast Range Radio. I really enjoyed talking with you both today. All right. Thank you, Michael. And uh, appreciate the opportunity to share some of these perspectives and, uh, and really appreciate your taking interest in this important subject. And thanks, Megan, as well, for, uh, for doing a great job on putting together this new situation analysis here for Oregon, really valuable addition to the management of the Oregon coast. And then also just for being such a great colleague as we've uh, worked together over the years. Much appreciated. Thank you, Steve. It's been great chatting with both of you. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be on the, on the podcast. And thanks for coming, Steve. All right. Thanks so much. You too. Take care. And that's our show. 
To learn more about any of the topics we discussed today, check out our show notes in the episode description or find our show page on our website, coastrange.org. We'll post a link to the Seaweed Aquaculture Report on our Facebook page as soon as that's public, so make sure to follow us there. If you like what we're doing, please show your support in at least one of the following ways. Leave us a rating and review in your podcast app. It only takes a few seconds. You could share this episode with at least one friend. And finally, consider becoming a financial supporter at coastrange.org. Again, that's coastrange.org. And as always, email me, michael at coastrange.org, with feedback, questions, show ideas, or just say hi. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in a couple weeks. <laughs>